This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to the Minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this show. Sorry, Scott, I went back to the original formulation. I just It's on the screen in front of me and I just read it because I couldn't summon, um, I don't know, the focus and the energy in the moment to just riff something better. Yeah, but also, I know, you know... I know it started with Refract, but I can't remember what came after. I, I, I don't remember it either. But, you know, yeah. six or seven years on, it just it kind of rolls off the tongue after a while, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. Let's and, be honest. And, How did we end up with something so ordinary? Uh, I'm sure I wrote it. Six or seven years ago, that's, that's how it happened. I'm quite sure. But, you know, it's actually not, it's not that inaccurate either. I mean, it skims over the fact that even invoking terms like ethical and moral have become themselves politically loaded and yeah. potentially socially dangerous. But it also suggests something that maybe there's a whole lot of stuff going on on the surface. If we linger on a topic long enough, if we try to do a little bit of excavation, we find a nice little bundle of problems that people who are a lot smarter than us and maybe not quite so distracted as we are have been thinking about for a long time. And just maybe, just maybe, that little bundle of related problems connects us to a broader debate that can shed light on our current situation. That's, that, that's kind of the idea, and I don't mind it too much. Okay. Um, by the way, it's my fault, but you broke the fourth wall there. That's Scott over there. Oh, right. Uh, Sorry. Well, they'd hear. I was meant to do the introductions. Hey, um, what if we described it as Welcome to the Minefield, the most happily unfashionable show oh, I like on that. the air? Yeah, I like Would that. that work? Yeah. doesn't tell you much about it, though. No, it doesn't. Anyway. Minefield anyway. probably tells you even less. It just says, yeah, you know, there's something does. risky here. Which... <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> did you know? Um, hey, hey. Yeah. Did you know? This is, this is going back even before our producer's time. I don't think anybody... I mean, this would have to be, I don't think I've ever even said this on air. One of the first uh, graphic mock-ups for the minefield. Um, so, you know, anyone who's been, say, on the ABC Listen app, or if you've gone to the website, you know that we've got this little purple square with a red and a yellow arrow pointing in different directions. One of the funniest things ever, by the way, was someone who got in contact with us very early on in the show saying that our logo looks like one of those damnable 1970s sociology textbooks. Uh, <laughs> it does was, too. It really <laughs> does. But well, yeah. one of the original mock-ups that we all vetoed immediately was of like a panel with a big red button on it. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was, it kind of evoked nuclear launch codes or something or other. It didn't... I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah, it was um, it was very, very funny. So I don't know the idea of danger or risk of, or unintended consequences. This was always kind of there from the beginning. I'm not sure. Yeah, how but much isn't we've... it funny how being dangerous is like <laughs> such so a passe. safe way to market yourself? It's yeah, so yeah. passe. You know what I think? Okay. Honest to God, the most dangerous idea in our time mm. is that civility is really worth fighting for. Yeah. And that we're all worse without it. Um, it just says something that that's just about the most dangerous idea that we can come up with. Yeah, it's definitely unfashionable. Definitely that. unfashionable. Um, it's not what we're talking about today. Oh, no, it's it not. is. Maybe, maybe it is. It nah, is. probably not. Actually. Well, a little bit. Uh, Go on. I have to, I'm going to think about this while you explain what we're talking about. Okay. Um, back in early June, we had uh, Professor Megan Davis from University of New South Wales on the show. She was one of the minds behind, one of the writers of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I'd encourage anybody who hasn't listened to it to go back and listen to it. I, I just find her an extraordinary, endlessly enlightening person to listen to. And, you know, sometimes we talk about moral seriousness. Um, she, it seems to me, is sort of moral seriousness on two legs. I, I just find her really, really impressive and a gift to our common life. Um, we're not talking about the Uluru Statement from the Heart, but we are kind of today. Last week... Uh, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese addressed the Garma Festival. In his address, and I would strongly encourage people who haven't read it or haven't listened to it to read it or listen to it. I, I found it really impressive on a whole lot of different levels. Um, there's a moral substructure there that is rare in politics. Uh, and maybe some of what we're doing today is to try to pick a few of those ideas apart or to bring them out into the light. 
But he, he did a couple things there. He reaffirmed his election night commitment that the Albanese Labour government will commit itself to realizing the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full. You and I both commented on the fact after it happened that that really was quite an extraordinary thing for him to do on the night of his election victory. But he did something else there. Uh, I think he, he read the moment right. He realized the land that he was on and the air that he was breathing and the company that he was in. Um, he, made a, he made a most interesting appeal to why the Australian people should respond affirmatively to the other thing that he committed to, which is a referendum that would see the constitutional enshrinement of a First Nations voice in the Australian constitution. But what's so interesting, Waleed, um, we, we both, I think we both recognized this separately, but it took you to point out the power of it. He made the case, however, not just on the basis of kind of unfinished business. I think it was important that with Kevin Rudd's apology, for instance, in 2008, unfinished business really was the, the central kind of underlying, you know, this has been neglected for too long. I'd say with Paul Keating's 1992 Redfern Address, the moral register was entirely different. If Kevin Rudd's was unfinished business, Paul Keating's was the centrality of empathy. Um, and in fact, Anthony Albanese makes reference to precisely that. He makes reference to Paul Keating's address. What would we do if what happened to the First Nations of this land happened to us? Mm. Um, so there is something in Paul Keating's address about the moral dimensions of the invocation of the first person, plural pronoun, we, that are absolutely central. What do we mean? What can we say when we use the term we? Yes, we can boast. Yes, we can take pride in certain things that we have done. But if we are going to say we, then we also may have to make the full moral acknowledgement of the crimes that were done in our name. What Anthony Albanese did is essentially he made the patriotic case for why now is the time for a referendum now is the time for the constitutional enshrinement of a First Nations voice and why it is that this is a further realization of Australia's national identity, not so much a departure from it. And also, he laid down his patriotic inclinations yes. in that same uh, election victory speech where he opened with a reference to the Uluru Statement with that sort of refrain, which we've really only gotten used to hearing from conservative polit political leaders and perhaps Americans, <laughs> that uh, this is the greatest country on earth. Yeah. And I think what's important there is that he he's embracing something that progressives uh, have been very reluctant to embrace, and that is the idea that this is a great country. Mm. To say that... I think, in progressive politics has been seen almost as evidence of your kind of moral smallness, um, a kind of inexcusable parochialism um, that glosses over all of the imperfections and the injustices. It's, it's, a, it's a far more, well, to return to the term fashionable, progressive position to castigate the nation as being somehow morally deformed, you know, a deeply racist country or whatever. Ab initio, know, in but, fact. Ab initio, from the yeah. very beginning morally deformed. And, and still, because that hasn't been in any way changed, right? That, that everything, the country that we live in is, is just the fulfilment of that original sin. Yes, exactly. Um, I don't know. I've, no one's asked Anthony Albanese. It's hard to imagine a circumstance in which they, they would ask it, I guess. But I don't know what Anthony Albanese would say if you asked him if he thought Australia was a racist country. I don't know. I don't know what he would say. I suspect he'd, ha he'd find a way to say no while simultaneously spruiking for the voice to parliament. But I guess what's interesting is he strikes a very different posture on just the whole, I don't know, what do you call it, atmosphere of patriotism mm -hmm. than, say, the Greens do. And the Greens do this, I think, in an increasingly uh, explicit and self-conscious way. Um, which is why there was that flashpoint, which 
at the time I sort of went, oh, okay, whatever. But I can sort of see that it might actually be a significant um, revelatory moment um, when it sort of became public knowledge that Adam Bant, the Greens leader, re would refuse to appear at press conferences in front of the Australian flag, only in front of the two Indigenous flags. And um, it was interesting that Labor picked that moment to to castigate the Greens for that. So they're very clearly now charting a kind of patriotic course. And it's interesting to watch something like the voice to Parliament, the whole Uluru statement, being refracted through that prism, mm. not as something that is there to shame the nation um, and not as something we should respond to out of a sense of guilt or shame, but rather as a... Um, a something that a patriot should embrace mm. for patriotic reasons. It's a fascinating rhetorical development. I don't know what it means politically necessarily or whether it um, means that the voice referendum is successful or anything like that, but just at, even at the level of political rhetoric, it's fascinating and I think consequential. Mm. Can I just pick up one point that uh, yeah. I'm not sure we entirely discussed previously, sure. but I find, again, endlessly interesting. On, on one level, rhetorically... What the prime minister did is what you would expect a prime minister to do. I mean, you're not going to have the prime minister of the nation stand up at a significant event and deliver an address that trashes the nation. Um, no, no, he doesn't have to do that. No. But he doesn't have to embrace the language. No, of the that's right. That's exactly right. So on one level, I think people could sort of cynically roll the eyes and say, well, you know, of, of course, this is just the CEO, you know, kind of spruiking the market value of the company. Of course, there is one moment in his speech that I found really, really interesting, just on all sorts of levels, because we've we, we've kind of discussed it in other contexts. Let me just read to you from a particular moment. Um, he's talking about uh, what the voice uh, will and will not be. He says, I believe there is room in the Australian hearts for the statement from the heart. We are seeking a momentous change, but also a very simple one. It's not a matter of special treatment or preferential power. It's about consulting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on decisions that affect you. Nothing more, but nothing less. This is simple courtesy. It's common decency. That line, Willie, it's common decency. Um, this is also patriotic language. I don't think a lot of people recognize it as such, but it absolutely is. If you just think about the morally overdetermined place that common decency had within George Orwell's, uh, uh, let's say, philosophy of patriotism, the common decency is the thing that knits the people together, the people who really do belong to a particular place, the people who are united by a degree of love and common deference for that place. I mean, George Orwell, of course, was a famous patriot. Uh, he was uh, less inclined to nationalism. He thought that nationalism was necessarily bellicose. Uh, Which is an important distinction that I think progressive yeah. politics has smudged. Yes, I think you're right. But I think what's interesting is that George Orwell, I mean, if he had no moral philosophy apart from the philosophy of common decency, which is you get people who are able to see one another as equals, who are able to recognize one another through the lens and through the connective bonds of a common culture, who can see one another as having a stake within the conditions of their common life. And people will kind of make room for one another. They will incline themselves through such important uh, political practices as patience and turn-taking and civility and not seizing the last dumpling on the plate, but waiting for someone else to have it. You know, the, the kind of things that when you make those little everyday sacrifices, it actually strengthens the bonds between citizens. But here I think there's also a point at which common decency has been weaponized, I think, by uh, people who are opposed to or who see the downside or the dark side of patriotism. Some of the work that, um, I mean, I've mentioned him a few times on the show, the French uh, political philosopher Pierre Rosanne Vallon, one of the diagnoses that he has made of the temptation of populism is he says that populism uh, trades on a massive simplification of the inherent complexity of national and democratic life. So one of the fundamental things that populism does is it says it's hard, isn't it, to relate to people who aren't like you. It's hard, isn't it, to find meaningful topics of conversation with people who, say, don't share the same first language as you do or who, uh, whose um, 
community calendars are slightly different from ours, or who have holy days or feast days or high days that are different from ours, or who uh, have different food from the way that we do, or who frame, who, or who are motivated by different, say, moral values. Than what. It's hard, isn't it, relating to, finding consensus with people who are like that. But that's okay, because one of the things that, this is the argument, what populism longs for is the simplification of the civic bonds themselves. In other words, the kind of natural gravitation towards people who are basically like you and who you don't have to work too hard with to get along well, who you kind of see eye to eye with. And the whole language of common decency has been almost taken over within some forms of populist political language, where it's, you know, this should be something easy about life together as a nation when you're surrounded by people who are like you. There should be something easy about this kind of casual, uh, this casual appeal to common decency. What I really liked about the way that Anthony Albanese elevated the concept of common decency is that it's invoking something that is at the heart of the life of the nation, that is something like a moral resting pulse in the way that we relate to one another. It's an appeal to a virtue that we ought to have in common and a kind of regulative principle in the way that we engage with one another. It trades on, and in fact, he goes on immediately after that point to invoke um, uh, Paul Keating's note of empathy. What would it be like if this happened to us? So he is trading on what is common, on what is fundamentally decent, if anybody with a modicum of moral formation reflects on it. But then he elevates it to that kind of national or patriotic principle. This is what we as a nation do. We overcome complexity, not by seeking the solace of what is simple or what is natural relating to people who are simply like us, but rather reaching to that higher plane, that higher level within our national self-expression, namely extending the most fundamental of human traits, of decency and, and empathy towards those who have responded to our original crime with an act of extraordinary invitation and generosity. I think which, And gener generous offer was the phrase he used, which I thought was right. a really telling phrase. But uh, So I think all that's correct. And I think that's a very appropriate way of describing and engaging with something like the Uluru Statement from the Heart. What I think is interesting about this and potentially what is missing from that approach is that it lands, I think, in a public environment that isn't about common decency. Mm. Mm. Now, it may well be that that's an ingenious political calculation from the new Prime Minister on the understanding that the reason the electorate turfed out the previous guy was what they perceived as being a lack of common decency. And so there's an overarching yearning for a less conflictual way of relating that is more anchored in decency um, rather than just constant conflict. Okay. And that may be a, a correct reading. But I wonder whether or not that's entirely accurate because I think even if you look at the way, the, the continued obsession with Scott Morrison after he's left office, I think, in a lot of media coverage and then piggybacking off that, of course, you would find social media um, conversation is one of people still wanting to have the fight with him, you know, still wanting to attack him because he gave a sermon in a church that they didn't like and I would argue misunderstood, uh, attacking him because he was away for that first week in Parliament, giving a speech and so on. Um, so what I'm trying to do there is not say that there are no criticisms to be made of Scott Morrison. What, I, what I'm doing there is observing that the desire for conflict, the desire for vanquishing is still present, even in those who clearly are opposed to the government that they just got rid of, right? Mm. And so ours is not, I don't think, a public discourse that necessarily cherishes common decency, which is why at the very start we were talking about civility, weren't mm. we, and whether or not this show is about civility. I think in a way it is because... Patriotism, one of the things that's interesting about patriotism is it's a way of kind of establishing and valorising bonds that exist between people who share a certain geography. Mm. It tips over into nationalism where those bonds are defined in a way that is profoundly exclusionary. Yes, that's right. But the concept of patriotism is something that 
that celebrates a bondedness, that is something that implies a certain civility, right? There's a, there's a certain solidarity that patriotism implies and that solidarity can only really be preserved and tended with an overarching notion of civility. In fact, the arguments against civility, what I would term fashionable arguments of the moment, are arguments of bond breaking. Mm, that's true. They're not, they're not arguments of bond tending. They're arguments that say these people we should have nothing to do with, they deserve our derision, right? And so we attack, we're breaking the bond. In some ways, we're freeing ourselves of what we regard as an oppressive bond, right? Um, and so it therefore becomes unpatriotic, almost by definition or by accident, because you're no longer really interested in ensuring the togetherness of the people with whom you disagree. You have to be liberated from them. That, to me, is more a reading of the moment. Um, Anthony Albanese is a professional politician. He probably reads the electorate far better than I do, so I'm not saying he should change course on the basis of my <laughs> observation, but, but that is nonetheless how, how I observe it. Right? What I think is interesting then, though, about the, this embrace of patriotism is I've thought a lot over the past couple of decades about patriotism, and I will admit there have been a lot of moments where I've recoiled from it on grounds that its expression is so often aggressively nationalistic. What perhaps I didn't quite fully appreciate, and I know our guest did, is that where people who, and I don't necessarily describe myself this way, but, but where people who would say they're on the progressive side of politics go wrong by abandoning notions of patriotism is that they simply give it over to those who want to define it in nationalistic ways mm -hmm. and want to prosecute it in nationalistic ways. And so I've been thinking a lot about whether the abandonment of patriotism or the derision of patriotism as a kind of not just valid but perhaps essential piece of political scaffolding, whether that is ushering in something that is healthier in its stead or just leaving us with a wasteland. And I think I've concluded that it's not ushering in something healthier because what it's doing, like the criticism of patriotism really has been that by accentuating or emphasising certain bonds, you exclude. But actually all that's happened is by getting rid of patriotism, we've deterritorialized bonds mm -hmm. and ended up creating globalised bonds right. with people that's on right. the basis of them being of like mind. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is you get what we're seeing, which is heightened conflict within geographical spaces because the bonds are now not based on shared geography and, you know, the circumstances that we necessarily share as a result of that. They are now ideological mm -hmm. or political. Mm -hmm. And so I now have a completely antagonistic relationship with the people with whom I do share geographic space because we don't have agreement, because what I have is a deterritorialized sense of bond making. Can I pick up just a small little footnote? And you can just tell me if you disagree or agree sure. with this. Where there are forms of local bond making, those forms can often be a bondedness of disaffection. In other words, the people mm. that do come together, it's not the positive bond of the patria, the positive bond of the state or the city or the place to which one belongs, but the negative bond of mutual opposition to a idea, um, the European Union. <laughs> yeah, or a symbol. Or a symbol, exactly. In, in other words, people remain together electorally in order to oppose a certain thing or get rid of a certain thing. but then To do this dance. To do yeah. this dance and then split apart. So I think we've seen this in action, haven't we, over the opening of the new parliament. We saw um, Pauline Hanson storm out at the acknowledgement to country, which is clearly a performative act because, of course, it's been going on for, what, 12 years, That's something right. like that, and suddenly it's a problem. Um, and then, of course, you saw the way that the Green Senator Lydia Thorpe sort of mockingly took the oath when being sworn in as a senator called the Queen a Colonizer and then retracted that language to take the oath in the sort of formal way that's required, but obviously in a very sarcastic tone. Um, these are moments, I think, um, we could argue, of political theatre that are mutually reinforcing, right? Mm, they, they, in, right. in a sense, exactly. they require each other in order to proceed. So, yeah, I see that, that point that you're making. I think what I would say, the one thing that patriotic 
forms of solidarity have over deterritorialized, globalized forms of solidarity, which, by the way, I'm not saying are unimportant or somehow inherently malign, just insufficient. The one thing it has is that it forces people to seek out bonds with whom there is necessarily going to be disagreement. Mm. It forces you to some extent, if you're serious about it, and many aren't, but if you're serious about it, it forces you to some extent out of a bubble. Ironically, the thing about globalised, idea-based solidarities is that they can exist very safely within a bubble. So we think of them as larger, as somehow more um, enlightened and expansive because they're global, but actually they're microscopic as well. They are a kind of, uh, to use someone else's phrase, is not original, they are a kind of global microstructure. Mm. And that is a really interesting dimension of all aspects of globalisation, which we don't really think about very much, talk much about. But it is something that I think highlights the bit that patriotism has going for it. And so it's fascinating to watch the Labor Party generally, but I think Albanese specifically pivot in that direction. It seems to me a quite deliberate thing. And maybe it was a result of the defeat in 2019 and a reorientation towards the kinds of people they thought they could win back um, that had abandoned them or didn't vote for them in 2019. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not within those four walls where those decisions are made, but it's a really interesting development to watch. Mm, agreed. This is The Minefield on RN, also on podcast. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Our guest is a great friend of this show, someone Waleed and I both uh, admire and respect very, very deeply. Tim Supanasan is Professor of Practice and Director of Cultural Strategy at the University of Sydney. Tim, thank you so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Oh, hi, Scott. Great to be back with you. And hi, Waleed. Hello. I'm going to do something a little bit weird here. So instead of going straight into the politics of it, which I know is your wheelhouse, I want to draw an analogy with moral philosophy. So there is an idea that if a moral agent is filled with self-loathing and with pessimism about their own moral capacities, the capacity for moral change, for doing something meaningful is dramatically limited. But if a moral agent is infused with, let's just say, a minimal degree of pride, that maybe I'm not a complete loser. Maybe people don't see me as being a failure or running aground. But maybe people see the best in me and give me the ability to see something in myself that maybe I didn't fully recognize. That once equipped with a kind of minimal degree of pride, a moral agent is able to take steps towards self-cultivation, self-transformation, moral betterment that maybe they wouldn't have been able to otherwise. I mean, Tim, you've written, I think, some of the best stuff there is on the virtues of citizenship and the high moral calling that's bound up with the vocation of citizenship. But one of the kind of the substructure arguments to that, though, is to some extent virtuous citizenship requires an operative form of patriotism. You'd have to say then, wouldn't you? Please correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth. But patriotism there almost functions like a form of collective pride that allows a nation and a nation of citizens to take the steps forward necessary that maybe a degree of self-loathing or national pessimism would not. Fascinating question, Scott. And I'd say that patriotism does raise questions around moral agency and you're right to highlight that a self-loathing agent is going to find it difficult to embark on uh, projects of significance. Uh, if you can't love yourself, how can you love others? How can you bring others with you? And, and I think this is as much an emotional and psychological prerequisite of agency as it is a philosophical point. Um, so so what, what you're saying with is, is something I agree with it at a very basic level, which is that some sense of pride and self-respect is a precondition of self-improvement. And that's true in my view of individuals and by analogy, it is true as well of nations, at least you would argue that. And, and in my view, 
patriotism is something like an engine for collective self-improvement. If a community does not have a sense of healthy pride and self-respect, it can become very difficult for a community to think about how it can improve itself. Um, And this is the uh, argument I've made in, in my work as a political theorist around patriotism. Uh, patriotism is uh, something that we we should embrace and, and welcome because a love of country can be harnessed in order to generate improvement for the community. What then of the, the kind of randomness of people being thrown together in communities around which patriotism must gather? Like, I guess that's a, another way of expressing what I was mm. trying to get at before about about that's the that's the peculiar or particular thing about patriotism that I think gives it something to commend it that these are not communities of choice by and large. I mean, for migrants, I suppose you could say they are, but but overwhelmingly they're not. They're forced together. They're a bit like family in that way. Well, yes, and and it depends on what kind of community you tie patriotism to. Uh, at a very basic level, I, I would be saying that patriotism is something that is bound up with citizenship or belonging to a political community. Um, it's just that historically, the political communities that matter the most happen to be nation states and are also bound up in nations. Um, and uh, your membership of a national political community, as you say, Waleed, is often not the result of a conscious choice with the exception of uh, immigrants who choose to leave their home country and settle in another country. Um, I think this does highlight how patriotism works, not just at a cerebral level, though, but in a very uh, visceral and emotional level. If we're talking about what patriotism must mean, it means a love of country, And I would say this involves, yes, a certain identification with a community and with a historical uh, tradition as well, but it also encompasses a special concern you have for your compatriots and for your fellow citizens. Um, And this is where the more visceral emotional bits come into it and and less the cerebral. Um, We're talking here about the bonds that exist between people who live together and who made choices together. Uh, and those that you, you do live with aren't always going to be the people that you choose <laughs> to, to live with. Uh, your neighbours, your fellow citizens can be the, the, the product of accidents, as it were. They can often, they, they often do involve strangers. You don't know most of your fellow citizens, but you're part of this um, imagined a community that does come to life from time to time in the interactions that you have um, through your work, through um, your neighbourhood, through the schools that you attend or your children attend and so on. Which raises an interesting question, right, because one of the common affectations of our politics, I think, generally at the moment, but also of the way that nationalistic forms of patriotism work, is that there are patriotism that seems to be, if it exists at all, is grounded in wanting to expel the other from the community, right? The way you framed it, I wonder if that can be deemed a form of patriotism at all. Because if patriotism really is about this understanding of belonging to a community of circumstance and therefore having a kind of, by definition, solidarity with them, that stands in direct opposition to expulsion, doesn't it? To an extent it does. Um, and, And you think of how citizenship in recent years has been stripped of, stripped from certain Australians, right, um, who, who have uh, fought as foreign fighters, for example. A, a patriotic view of that scenario would say, uh, actually, they're our people. And it's not right to say that their acts or, or, or deeds are no longer ours and they know that they are no longer our fellow citizens. Um, rather, it's our responsibility to deal with them whether we like it or not. So, you know, expulsion is a very drastic uh, step to take here when you're talking about your fellow citizens, because um, if it's as easy as expelling those that you disagree with or those who have contravened the rules of the community, um, it can come at the price of cheapening the the ultimate bond of of citizenship. Uh, I guess the, the, the default 
approach I would identify with a patriotic sentiment is a more inclusive one uh, rather than a necessarily exclusionary one, which is to say that there is a claim that a fellow member of your community makes on you as a citizen. You can't just simply ignore or dismiss what your fellow compatriot says, uh, even if you disagree with it, because you've got an obligation to listen, to wrestle with what they say, and if possible, to find common ground with them. Um, and, and, and this goes to the civility point that you and Scott have been wrestling with here. Civility implies a certain level of respect for um, for others. I would say that patriotism implies a very strong form of civility, which is um, you don't just have to show some sense of respect for others who are your fellow citizens, but you must also have a special concern with their welfare and uh, and their views. Um, you just can't run away or say, you know, this doesn't belong here. You, you've actually got to do the hard work of um, of crafting a middle ground, perhaps a compromise or some kind of solution that just doesn't cast the loser of the argument as, as a loser, as it were. Tim, I just find that a colossally important point to make because I, I think even while many of us might sneer at what you know, Pierre Rosavallon calls the, the populist temptation, which is to deal with complexity or to respond to complexity by trying to simplify um, our civic bonds and to simplify the character, the quality of our national life so that what uh, is here, what's part of the nation, are only those things which, quote unquote, belong to that nation. I mean, it's, it's, almost, it's almost winding patriotism back to the cultural equivalent of almost a kind of a blood and soil nationalism, um, refusing to say those things which are divergent or difficult, those things which are problematic or immorally or, or politically taxing. These are things which were never part of us in the first place, and we just haven't excluded them yet. I just find, I find elevating that as a kind of political problem or a moral problem or a problem that inheres to citizenship as such, I find that immensely important, but also challenging because what any conception of patriotism has to hold on tightly to is what we could call a kind of warts and all patriotism. This is our history. Parts of it were absolutely awful and we need to be able to live with it. We need to be able to resolve together that such a thing will never, ever happen within our shared life again and that we'll find ways of living together in its light and learning from it. But this is our history. And somehow being able to acknowledge the worst elements of who we are, that becomes part of the condition of possibility of being able to resolve together to live on the basis of those best expressions of who we are. Is that, is that too simplistic? Uh, nothing's ever simplistic, Scott. <laughs> um, uh, but you're, you're right to highlight how difficult this work can be uh, and, and, and the appeal of or the temptation of populism is that it clarifies, it simplifies, it gives you something that you can latch onto and there is a clear answer. Whereas I would say the responsibilities of patriotism often requires you to um, muddle through to accept that there are ambiguities, that there may not necessarily be an emphatically clear answer at a given moment in time. Um, and this is captured, I would say, if we go back to the gum speech that Anthony Albanese gave um, in the language that he used around humility and hope. Hmm, he, wasn't, he wasn't saying that uh, there was a clear, you know, uh, uh, that, that this wasn't going to be free of complications and that this wasn't going to uh, involve something uh, without conflict, but rather you enter into it with, um, on the one hand, hope, but on the other hand, humility, recognizing that there could be difficult conversations, there could be disagreements, and that the result may not look like what you think it's going to look like when you start the dialogue. And and this goes, I, I would say, to the uh, multiple registers in, in, in which you speak of your community. Um, uh, patriotism, obviously, in implies a certain pride or a loyalty um, and identification with um, one's community and historical 
tradition, however defined, however that's defined. But it also, on the other side of the coin here, implies a capacity for feeling shame. Uh, if you can feel proud about something when, uh, when when it has attained certain achievements, um, then the corollary is that you sh you may also feel a sense of shame when it falls short of where uh, you want it to be. But that's not a reason for you then to uh, ignore or dismiss those aspects that bring about shame. Um, and, and going to your warts and all view, I'm reminded of the the provenance of um, one of the catchphrases around patriotism, uh, which is my country right or wrong, That's right. Um, a, a formulation that really gained currency in the 19th century in America. Um, but that came about through some of the political debates you had about loyalty uh, among German Americans at the time. And there was a senator in, in Washington, Carl Schertz, the senator for Missouri, who was um, alleged to be traitorous to America because he was German. And his response to that catchphrase or retort was to say, yes, my country right or wrong, if right to be kept right, and if wrong to be set right. And, and I think that mm. captures the, 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 the kind of complexity that, that I would say um, a true patriotism implies. It's not a blind loyalty, but rather something that uh, leaves room for self-improvement and self-criticism. You are listening to The Minefield on ABCRN. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. That voice belongs to Tim Soupomasan, Professor of Practice and Director of Cultural Strategy at the University of Sydney. Tim, and yet for all of that, patriotism, like any group identification, has to exclude in order to be meaningful. Right. This is the great attraction of it. If it excludes nobody, it means nothing. Hence the tendency for it to tip over into nationalisms. But also the, 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 there's something there that, that that's the danger that's always there because some way of articulating who we are not and who is not of us must exist. That doesn't necessarily mean that you despise those who are not of us, which is, I think, the the sort of falsely consequentialist thinking of people who don't like patriotism, but nonetheless that there has to be a kind of a, a kind of preferentialism in the same way as when I talk about my family and my love for my family, I'm, I don't know, I'm conferring upon those people a love that is simply not available to people mm. who are outside of that. And if I were to say, well, everyone's my family, then, well, no one actually is my family. My family ceases to have meaning. So how then would you navigate your path through those sort of treacherous waters? Well, they're certainly treacherous, Waleed, for the reasons that you, you've stated. And, and you're absolutely right to say that uh, there is something special in having a particular concern or attachment to others as opposed to something universal. Um, and, and, that's, and that's why the language of patriotism is one about having a special concern, not just for people in general, but for your fellow citizens or compatriots, um, which then raises the question, well, who are your fellow citizens and compatriots? How, you, how do you define your community? And, and I would say that if we're talking about a sense of identity that is defined in uh, ancestral terms or in ethnic terms or in racial terms, then you've got a very uh, clear danger that an invocation of patriotism descends into ethnic or racial nationalism. But if you're defining your community in political terms as something civic rather than something ethnic, uh, I would say that you're guarding against some of the dark side of patriotism. And there is a attractive side. view. Yeah, there is. But, but that, and that's an attractive view, which I've articulated in the past, and as a way of saying this is the genius of American patriotism, right, is that it's so civic that anyone can enter it and attach themselves to Americanness in the same way that is very difficult to do in European nations, for example, where a more ethnic definition of the nation has prevailed for so long. However, mm. we saw what happened in the United States, didn't we? <laughs> so, so there's something interesting that goes on there. Because if you define it in a way that becomes so purely civic and especially where that civic tradition is perhaps not sufficient 
to hold people together, and the United States has a better shot at that than probably anyone else, um, certainly than Australia, because we don't really have a... We're not a nation founded on a civic tradition with anything like the passion that the United States is. If you don't have that, then attempts to de-culturate... Deculturate? Is that the, probably the right word to use here? Somewhere. To take the culture out of mm-hmm. patriotism will necessarily yield that kind of counter-response that we have seen in the United States. Yeah, and and there have been significant debates about about this in the US too, and uh, there have been a number of major works in recent years which have called precisely for the reclaiming of uh, patriotism because of uh, what has happened with Donald Trump and the, the apparent conceding of national pride to elements on the far right. Um, you know, the, the relationship between politics and culture is a, a very complex one. Um, I often refer to a patriotic attachment, not just to a community, but also to a historical tradition, because I uh, I would say that it, the, the history of a particular community gives it its meaning. Uh, you know, you, you may you may ask, for example, well, if patriotism is just purely civic, what then distinguishes Australian patriotism from American patriotism, or a British patriotism, or a German patriotism? And and I would say it's the institutional form of the political community that goes some way to answering that, and the um, historical stories that we we tell about ourselves as as a community. Um, Australian egalitarianism means a certain thing and it takes a different inflection to what equality in America would mean. Um, what parliamentary democracy means in Australia, for example, is very different to what a parliamentary democracy in Germany means and implies. And when we talk about these historical elements, um, this is something that you can inherit even if you're not part of the national history uh, over time through your family uh, lineage. You know, uh, if you are mm. a part of a community and you've benefited from that community and you're contributing to that community, then in one aspect, in one respect, you've inherited that historical tradition too. I mean, this is how I reconcile my own connection with an Australian story as someone who arrived here as part of a migrant family, having been born in France, having family from a Lao and Chinese background. The fact that I've grown up here means that I have an inheritance of this Australian tradition. I've become part of it over time. And that means that um, the attachment to, in this case, an Australian a tradition and community isn't just purely civic, but is also historical and something emotional. It seems to me that there are two things that any morally defensible concept of patriotism simply cannot broach, cannot survive. One is a kind of purely vertical form of patriotism, which is you subscribe to flag, you subscribe to the capitalized name of the nation, you, dis- you subscribe to something almost in the form of a sort of civic religion and you pay obeisance to your national god or else you are a heretic. Um, that kind of purely vertical notion of patriotism where everybody engages in it in the same way and on the same terms, it seems to me that, I mean, there really is no moral difference between that and blood and soil nationalism. The other form of patriotism is one that doesn't wholly, I think, completely subscribe to the horizontal dimension, that patriotism is something that, yes, it belongs to a tradition. Yes, it has a history, warts and all, achievements and all, victories and all, losses and all. But it's also something that is reaffirmed or reinvented at every moment. Um, There's something about the peculiar, synchronic nature of this group of citizens at this time, in this place, in these circumstances, that makes patriot that has to make the forms of patriotism that, that are required recognizable at every moment, even as it draws upon those other strands, those other tributaries. And I, I guess, Tim, the last question that I had for you, and this is the thing that I wrestle with all the time, what happens then when a certain form of patriotic celebration, a kind of pride-taking in everyday life or through forms of, say, annual celebration, What happens when a particular form of patriotic pride 
actively excludes or is taken to excluding or is felt as excluding a portion of our citizens as they now exist at this particular moment. Does patriotism have that kind of virtuosity? Can it, can it enjoy those forms of historically recognizable self-definition and still be called patriotism? Oh, what a what a question, Scott! Um, in, in in two minutes, um, here we go. Uh, <laughs> much much not much depends on the community and its capacity for reflection here, um, and in particular, its ability to make sense of self criticism not as an act of repudiation, but as as reflecting a desire for self improvement. Hmm. I would say that there have been examples around the world where countries have had to um, wrestle with significant questions of historical responsibility and guilt. Um, Think of how uh, Germany, following the Second World War, had to uh, reconcile its national identity with the misdeeds conducted during its Nazi era. Uh, I would say at the moment, speaking generally, there can be a reflex into thinking that when you criticise aspects of national history or when you call for things to be done differently, that they're viewed as statements of rejection, that you are somehow being, say, un-Australian or un-American in uh, rejecting what should be good and true about the country, when more often than not, the people who are coming forward and making these claims are probably motivated by something very different, you know, by a desire to make their country better uh, and to ensure that it can speak for 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 everyone in the country right now at this moment. Um, so this is a balance that countries need to strike very judiciously if they're to have a form of common identity that people can relate to. You know, you've got the ritualistic elements of patriotism, which you've talked about, but you've got to have substance behind it. Um, the rituals mean nothing if people can't identify with the community and the achievements of that community. So, um, and, and this is where I, I would say having a patriotic frame can change the way that you, you understand these debates. If you understand that a love of country means that you want to improve your country and that's your starting point, you can see uh, different voices and those that you disagree with in a different light compared to when you believe that um, there is a certain version of the national story or, or, or of the national history that must be defended at all costs. Hmm. Provided you imagine that the people with whom you share this space are people that you still intend to retain in your family. Yeah, that's right. That, that's the ultimate thing at, that, that makes That's up. right. At the, at the risk of misquoting Tolstoy, you know, uh, you might say that all, all happy nations are the same, but every unhappy nation or country is unhappy in its own way. In its own way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, you answered that about as well as you could in two minutes, Tim, so well done. I'm Thank sorry, you for Tim. helping us I'm keep sorry. time uh, <laughs> as well as offering your pearls of wisdom. Great to have you on the show again. Thanks so much for helping us. Great to be back. Thank you, Waleed. Thanks, Scott. Tim Supomasan, Professor of Practice and Director of Cultural Strategy at the University of Sydney, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. That's it from us. We'll see you soon. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.